we welcome uh, today Ambassador Gary A. Grappo. Uh, Ambassador Grappo has been on the program before. He served numerous assignments at the State Department in Washington, D.C., um, as uh, well as in uh, the Middle East. Uh, specifically, uh, he has served in, uh, well, in Portugal, in Nicaragua, but in the Middle East, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, twice in Oman, Iraq, and in Jerusalem, which, of course, is in Israel. He held a number of senior positions in the State Department, including U.S. Ambassador to the Sultanate of Oman, Minister Counselor for Political Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, and Charge d'Affaires and Deputy Chief of Mission at the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. More than a pleasure to welcome back Ambassador Gary A. Grappo. Ambassador Grappo, thank you for joining us. Um, happy Thursday. Unfortunately, I'd love to be talking to you under happier circumstances. Well, it's good to be with you, uh, Leslie, and you're right. It's um, a tragic uh, day following uh, uh, the events that occurred in, in Brussels a short while ago, and it just points up the stark reality that the world now now faces in terms of uh, terrorism. Um, let, let's uh, the Brussels attackers. We are being told today were considering a nuclear sites and then, a nuclear site to attack, and then it, it seems at least that they changed their mind. Um, what do you make of this? Well, uh, they may have indeed been looking at. Um, perhaps higher value targets, but in fact, uh, they are looking at scoring victories. Uh, victories are what this movement, ISIS, needs in order to continue its recruitment efforts. It has not seen very many victories in Syria or Iraq lately. In fact, their uh, control of territory in both of those countries has been reduced largely as a result of the coalition airstrikes. And uh, they need these victories, and so where where else can they go but to extremely vulnerable targets in Europe? And nothing is more vulnerable than a public target, uh, target like public transportation or an airport. And uh, they were very vulnerable, very exposed. They no doubt had intelligence about both of those sites. Uh, they had the personnel. They had the bombs and so forth. And so they were very well positioned to go after these extremely soft targets in probably one of the softest countries in Europe, Belgium. Uh, when we look at what happened, do you think that the arrest that started last week in Brussels may have forced them to switch their targets because, you know, there were more eyes on sites like a nuclear site as opposed to the subway, for example? I don't think there's any question that uh, the capture last week of Salam uh, Adeslaap probably forced them to accelerate their planning, to refine their targeting, uh, probably in fear that perhaps he might divulge some of their plans. And so the, the impetus for, the, uh, for them became uh, to get an attack out, to launch an attack, to have the impact that they need to have. And, of course, they succeeded in doing that with the two targets there in, um, in Brussels. Um, let's talk about the individuals involved. There were three that we see on um, CCTV. Um, one of them, uh, two of them were successful in blowing themselves up and uh, taking 30 lives with them. But one uh, did not. This is not a change of mind thing for the third who is still at large in this particular attack, correct? This is a, at least uh, what I'm being told, and Ambassador, you probably would know uh, better than I, uh, that the, the, the bomb did not detonate, and this was the largest of the three bombs. Well, something similar to this happened, of course, in, in, in Paris. Not all of the attackers were killed. Not all of the attackers detonated uh, bombs for whatever reasons. And so it's not surprising uh, that here one of them failed to complete his mission. 
Um, and it also points out to the extreme vulnerability that Europe and Belgium in particular face uh, when it comes to monitoring the movements of extremists like these individuals. Okay, and, and Mr. Ambassador, we got to take a quick break. I, I sure. apologize for stepping on your toes there. And we will be back with Ambassador Gary A. Grappa right after this. We're talking about Brussels. We're talking about the connection to ISIS when we return. And we'll also talk about some things that have been said that tie into what the ambassador just talked about, which is the ability, capability, or lack of, of Brussels uh, to uh, be proactive with this regard. We'll be back. We're back from that quick break. Ambassador Gary A. Grappo is our guest, and we are talking to him about what happened uh, in the uh, Brussels attack and the man that is wanted in the subway bombing. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, Ambassador Grappo, so that people understand, um, these these individuals are connected to the Paris attacks, and we know this how. We know this because of the individual and the design of the vest and also from DNA. Is that correct? There are all of those items, plus that there is some existing intelligence not always available to individual intelligence agencies in some of these countries that has identified these individuals as being connected to the Paris attacks. But, of course, uh, after Paris, uh, we understood, we realized that much of the planning for those attacks took place in Brussels. And so the center or the focus of the investigation following the Paris attack became Brussels. And in fact, if you recall, uh, the the capital was under uh, virtual shutdown or lockdown as uh, they searched for those involved. So there was no no question that um, uh, sort of the, the focus or the center of planning was in Brussels. And in fact, in fact, Brussels itself uh, was very vulnerable to an attack, and of course, um, we saw that just the other day. Of course, uh, with the arrest last week of Salah Abdeslam, with, with uh, he being involved in having been the missing guy from uh, Paris, uh, now that they found him, do, do you, if you had to bet money, Mr. Ambassador, would you say that Salah knew what was going to happen uh, with, yes. with with regard to this and that? Um, is it? I, I don't want to be judgmental to another government, but is it a failure on, on behalf of the interrogators and the investigators uh, in Brussels to not have been able to obtain that information for him from him uh, in the time that he has been with them? Well, one has to wonder uh, what sort of interrogation he was subjected to following his his capture, because obviously the first thing you want to do is discover any plans that may be afoot uh, afoot for further attacks. Um, uh, On the other hand, uh, it's probably also fair to assume that those who actually did carry out the Brussels attack were aware that he might divulge this information. And as I said earlier, they probably accelerated their plans and maybe modified the targets because clearly they had more than just these targets in mind. They probably have a target list. That's what any group does, and uh, it would be very difficult to identify which specific targets, even if Abdul Salam knew them all, uh, which ones might actually be threatened. So, uh, yes, we have to wonder what kind of information uh, gathering skills they have in the uh, interrogation, uh, why they weren't able to forestall this. 
And even before his capture, there was a lot of information out there to indicate that something was forthcoming in Brussels. Uh, and why they couldn't stop it is a question I think they're all wrestling with now. Uh, certainly it is a fault of uh, intelligence gathering and law enforcement in uh, Belgium itself, and I don't want to be um, too critical of Belgium because they certainly made some very strong efforts to find those responsible. But um, some of these individuals, for example, had been in custody and subsequently released, or certain legal jurisdictions within Belgium or elsewhere in Europe were aware of these individuals, but the information was not shared across the lines of the legal jurisdiction. So a lot of shortcomings in the intelligence and law enforcement here, and that certainly coupled with what happened in Paris ought to force uh, the, the leaders in these countries, particularly in the law enforcement and counterterrorism side, to start thinking very, very strongly of how they're going to better, better coordinate uh, their efforts, collect intelligence, uh, intelligence, and most importantly, share it to prevent these from happening in the future. ISIS has taken responsibility for that. Wait, wait, before I go to that, the head of Turkey had said that Brussels dropped the ball and that they they knew there was a possible terrorist attack coming. Um, you know, do, do you agree with that? I mean, he feels that the information, you know, was there for them to use. Well, the Turks had captured uh, one of the individuals involved in the Brussels attacks and had returned him to Europe. I'm not sure whether it was Belgium, but one of the other countries. Uh, and the Turks may have extracted information from him before he was remanded to the other European country. Uh, what information they may have had, uh, was it shared? Uh, did it specifically indicate an imminent terrorist attack or at least one under plans? We honestly don't know. And again, Leslie, this points up to the weakness in the intelligence gathering and sharing among uh, the European countries. For a part of the world where there is complete, completely free movement across borders, uh, you would think that there would be very strong law enforcement and, and intelligence coordination to ensure that dangerous individuals are tracked and that each country is aware of, of names of individuals on everyone's lists. Uh, as it stands now, there's no common system in Europe for doing that. Uh, the Europeans know about 5,000, or know that there are about 5,000 of their citizens who have been involved in one form or another in jihadism with ISIS, Al Qaeda, or other groups, uh, but only have information about half of them. So where are the others, and how many are returning to Europe? Belgium has a particularly acute problem because on a per capita basis, they have the highest number of fighters um, in, uh, in the Middle East. So, um, again, the intelligence collaboration sharing is really vital if they're going to be able to prevent these kinds of attacks from happening in the future. Mr. Ambassador, speaking of that, specifically to prevention, um, Interpol and others in the international community have said they fear there, were, there are going to be more attacks and they fear they're going to be bigger. Uh, they fear that they're going to be closer together, which we're seeing a pattern of in the past couple of years, that these attacks seem to be closer and closer. It, it, you know, people are scared and panicked enough. 
Um, is it bad to fork a, is it bad to forecast that B does it give these people or even some lone wolf attackers ideas and C rather than say, Hey, we're afraid this is coming. Do something to stop it. Well, we, we certainly should, should not be trying to foment panic. I don't think there's any need for that. We have the means, and I say we in a collective sense, the United States and our European partners and even uh, our Arab allies have the wherewithal to prevent these from happening. Uh, we need to collaborate and coordinate much, much more than we have been doing, uh, especially in Europe. Uh, but I, I would... Um, uh, stress that when you start panicking, you start making irrational decisions or, or decisions that contravene fundamental values, particularly those uh, uh, values of freedom and tolerance that uh, we cherish here in this country as well as uh, many of our European partners. But um, if we don't start coordinating better, sharing intelligence better, um, we're, we're not going to be able to forestall these these attacks. And whereas I don't like to forecast that there will be more, I don't think there's any question that th- those who harbor ill will against us, particularly these Islamist extremists, uh, are indeed thinking about more attacks. That's not debatable. It's not reason for panic. But it's also a fact, and so we need to be thinking about uh, how we go after them. Uh, and law enforcement, intelligence sharing, of course, are a couple ways. Uh, there's a more fundamental problem that they have in Europe, which thankfully we do not have in our country, and that is um, Muslims in Europe have had a very, very difficult time in integrating into European society. Belgium is a classic case, but it's also a problem in, in France. Uh, American Muslims have, re- have done a relatively very good job of integrating in our country. We see them everywhere. We see them in public office, in our universities, work colleagues, friends, next-door neighbors. Um, and so that's less of a problem. And as a result, there's much better communication and collaboration between the Muslim American community and American law enforcement. Now, now, when you, they don't when want you to say radical, oh. radicalization uh, among their followers any more than the rest of us do, and therefore um, they are prepared to bring to the attention of law enforcement some signs that radicalization may be taking place among certain individuals within the American Muslim community. That's an advantage we have. Uh, the Europeans are still grappling with this very profound problem. And that's going to take a while to correct. Um, speaking to that, you must have read my mind because I was going to ask you something along those lines. Well, one, the U.K., I would say, um, you know, uh, the United Kingdom uh, do- is much like the United States. I mean, Muslims there make up uh, almost 15 percent of the population in England, um, and they have very much assimilated. Um, it, in, in France, actually, um, Muslims have been in France for over 100 years, and they were assimilating. What I understand from not only my travels to these countries and people that live there and you know, being in some of these um, Arabic or Muslim areas, is that the um, a, a couple of things. I heard in Brussels that there were two Brussels, okay? What we saw this week, we are one, writings in, you know, French and Arabic and English, um, and that they stand together. That And also that the parents or grandparents, because some of these people that are blowing themselves up are second or third generation uh, Belgians, um, 
that the, you know the parents or the, the grandparents you know did didn't have this mindset, but they also didn't feel the disenfranchisement and the lack of opportunity. And I've also heard, Mr. Ambassador, that some of these people kind of feel like the government oppressed their parents and their grandparents, and their parents and grandparents lived in fear and uh, were cowardly, if you will, and so they want to be feared instead of live in fear like their parents and their grandparents. Is there some truth to that? Uh, There's probably some truth to that, uh, without question. However, I, I think we have to bear in mind that we're also talking about a very small minority of individuals, uh, almost all of whom have been radicalized in one form or another. And it's quite possible uh, in Belgium and probably elsewhere in, in Europe that as this radicalization process took place, there was no counter-effort. Uh, there was no effort to reach out to these young men who were being effectively indoctrinated with extremist views uh, and getting them to consider uh, all alternate points of view and alternate ways of living their, their lives. And so uh, all you need is a handful, and that's what they've got here. Uh, I, I think that um, the Europeans now are going to have to address uh, this uh, issue of ghettoization, so to speak, in, in some of the countries in Europe where uh, you have a small number who maybe become self-isolated, but then others gather around them, and before you know it, you, you have these very large neighborhoods and places like Molenbeek in Brussels, uh, but also in Paris and in Lyon, that um, contain sizable numbers of Muslims, many of whom are feeling disenfranchised and marginalized and can be easily radicalized, and that's the real threat for Europe and ultimately for the entire West. Um, ISIS has taken responsibility for this. Um, tell, tell us the difference between acts when they do and, and when they don't. I mean, I, I mean, what, you know, is it, is it more severe when they have because it means that these individuals were, in a sense, assigned to do this and specifically trained to do this and perhaps provided funds or weaponry to do this? They may have been provided funds. They certainly got training when uh, when they traveled to either Syria or Iraq, whether they were actually directed in terms of the planning and so forth by ISIS uh, is hard to say and maybe not likely, uh, simply because these individuals had the necessary training and resources, the wherewithal uh, to carry out these acts. Moreover, as being natives, as you indicated, to these areas, whether Brussels or, or Paris, they had much better knowledge of the environment, the cultures in which these acts were going to take place. And so they, they had resource support, they had training support, maybe some general guidance, and certainly lots of indoctrination from, uh, from ISIS headquarters, so to speak, or the ISIS leadership. But these individuals probably carried this out on their own initiative uh, in some coordination with, uh, with uh, ISIS. Uh, and this is what ISIS wants to see. It wants to see more of these because if they try to plan it all from Syria, uh, it's not going to go well because they just don't have the on-the-ground knowledge that individuals like these who carried out the attacks in Brussels and Paris have. Do you feel that the rhetoric of uh, two of our politicians, um, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, also play into ISIS' desire 
um, that they want in the United States and throughout the world um, more Muslims to feel uh, separate like us and them, disenfranchised. They want countries like Poland just as announced not to take the refugees in so that they will be waiting for them with open arms. Uh, that's very much a part of the ISIS ideology and al-Qaeda as well. They want Muslims to believe that they are a people apart from the rest of the world. And uh, no better way to reinforce that idea than to have individuals in the West, whether in our country or elsewhere, who are talking about taking actions that are patently against Muslims as a whole. Uh, as a target group as opposed to individual terrorists that present real real threats to us. So I do not see that as productive uh, at all. It's counterproductive, particularly in our own country, where, as I indicated, uh, the Muslim-American community has come together uh, to work very collaboratively with, uh, with law enforcement. Um, one, uh, we, we've out of time. Mr. Ambassador, I will speak to you again. Ambassador Gary Grappo, you know uh, I'm a fan. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for all the great work that you've done for our nation and uh, the um, uh, very informative uh, conversation and information you provide for us to educate us further as Americans and voters here on the program and worldwide, people that aren't just American listening in throughout the world. Thank you. Ambassador Gary A. Grappo.